just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Speaking of Influence, the podcast for speakers and professionals or anyone who wants to present with impact. Hosted by presentation persuasion coach John Ball. Remember to like and subscribe. If you're thinking of starting a podcast, there couldn't be an easier way to get started than getting started with Buzzsprout. They have all the tools and resources you need for starting a podcast and getting it out to all the major podcasting networks. Check out the link in the show notes and get your podcast started today. Welcome to the show. I'm really happy to have with me a guest today who has over 17 years as a stand-up comedian. He's the host of a really funny podcast called The Partly Political Broadcast. And he is here today to talk about humour. He's been a stand-up comedian in different countries around the world. He's travelled with that. He was even listed as one of the top 10 comedy political podcast in The Guardian. So I'm really happy to have with me today, Tiernan Duyep. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. That was a, you, you almost made my accolades sound good then. I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I like, I like to pick it up. Actually, it is impressive. You know, I think to me, anyone who's doing stand-up comedy professionally is already impressive because that is such a scary thing for most people. The idea of even getting up on a stage with the intention of being funny and, and hoping that people are going to laugh at your jokes. Well, not, hopefully not just hoping. I mean, it's a, I realise there's a lot more <laughs> into it than a, than a wing and a prayer and hoping that it just works out when you actually put stuff out there. What ended up taking you into a, a comedy profession? Um, well, uh, it, yeah, I should just say that some people do believe that you just get up and wing it, which is always the most hilarious thing. If they just go, how did you think of all that on the spot? And yeah, not, I mean, I didn't really, <laughs> definitely written it before, um, some of it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I sort of uh, say that I don't have a particularly exciting origin story as a comedian because I, I, well, I really wanted to do acting. I really, really wanted to be an actor and uh, was in school plays from the earliest possible age and always wanted to be on stage performing and I'm just a hideous extrovert in that sense and um and then i uh, i went to university of kent uh, to do drama and as part of the drama degree there they had a course in stand-up comedy and i've always been intrigued i've always i always loved comedy um i used to go and see quite a bit of, of live comedy of, of comedians like eddie Izzard and alan davis and joe brown and people that i'd enjoyed on the tv and my parents brought me up with a, a kind of diet of friday night live on on tv on a friday with sort of ben elton and lexi sale and <laughs> Yeah, it just felt so raw and exciting. I'd always sort of, I always known it was fun and I didn't really know a lot about it or how people did it. And I think I probably also thought a lot of it was made up, you know, uh, like a lot of people that speak to me after gigs. So um, I did I did the course uh, and it was also only a few hours a week uh, because the rest of it you had to write and prepare. And um, 
and the very first time I stood on stage, I was, I, I was pale and I thought I was going to be sick everywhere. I can't believe how scared I was. And yet within about a minute, within that, you get that first laugh. And I almost instantly said, I think this is what I have to do for the rest of my life. And it was that sudden. I just, I'd never felt a rush like it. I'd never felt a satisfaction like it. And it was so different to acting. I, I still love acting and I, and I still like to do acting where I can, but acting you're doing someone else's words and you're being someone else and comedy you are yourself and people are laughing at jokes that you have written that are along your sense of humor and uh, the gratification from that i mean it's very egotistical i'll I'll admit but but it's it's quite overwhelming i didn't i couldn't go to bed for hours after that gig (laughs) i was awake for ages just buzzing off it oh yeah i'm not surprised i mean i I think i have a similar ish experience with public speaking i don't think any anyone generally thinks that public speakers just get up on a stage and platform without having rehearsed although i know uh, plenty of people who actually do that and uh, it's never generally a good idea i'm, <laughs> I'm really jealous that your your drama course had a, a comedy uh, a comedy element in it like, at university I, I went to the universe i went to work it's now the university of northampton but uh, at the time it was uh, a college that was part of leicester university and uh, no, I, I did a whole term on African dance, but I just didn't think I could make a career out of it. So. <laughs> oh, I'm sad to hear that, John. I really, uh, I really wish I could be talking to you now as you perform an amazing African dance. <laughs> it would be quite impressive. I, it would be interesting to go, go on uh, Britain's Got Talent with something like that and have all the arguments and Twitter about uh, what was it, uh, cultural appropriation and all yes. that. Yeah, it probably wouldn't be a great career for me, but uh, potentially no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but I would have, I would have loved the stand-up. Well, I say that now. I would have loved the stand-up comedy element. It probably would have terrified me at the time. Um, but I, lo- I love that that you got the bug for it. Do you think now that you are in this profession, is like okay, well, this is really what I'm meant to be doing, and this actually has worked out really well. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're speaking to me at an interesting time, John, where I think pre-pandemic, I could have said yes, absolutely, hands down. Um, yeah, I mean, and uh, it took me quite a few years to really, I don't know, I, it took me quite a few years to realise it was a career more than just something that I loved doing. Um, I was very passionate about it, and I did sort of have a day job for four years, and then uh, while geeking every night, but I never thought I could earn a living from it, and then there was a sudden turning point, and, and I could, and... I now sort of been unable to think of doing anything else for quite a long time. Um, but with stand up, you you do do other things because it incorporates writing as well as performance. So that means you can host, but it means you can script write, and it means you can do podcasts, and it means you can do, you know, it, there's a lot of things that come under that banner. And because the pandemic has, uh, I mean, who who would have thought, John, that shouting at people you don't know in a small uh, airless dark room would be bad for a virus? Who knew? <laughs> but it, it turns out that comedy, uh, while being recession proof. And many other things proof um isn't virus proof and so it's been a very tricky few months where i was meant to have been gigging between march and now about four times a week i was booked in for at least four shows a week and i've done uh between march and august i did two shows i've got two this month i've got one next month and the ones in november have just been cancelled so i am suddenly thinking do I need to, you know, do other things? And I'm, sp- I'm doing a lot more writing work now because I can from home um, safely. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I, I think uh, I, I've got to be careful how to discuss this because I think within comedy circles, we discuss it as like almost having an illness or having a sort of um, 
like a, a problem and obviously I can, I can see that some people might find that derogatory to people who have actual sort of mental health issues or other problems. but aside from that it's just how it's discussed in the industry because we have a weird need to be on stage and it claws at you and you feel very angsty if you haven't done it for a while and normally you'd have two weeks over Christmas or whatever where you wouldn't get to gig and you'd just be dying to get back on a stage whether it was for paid work or not you just wanted to talk to people and do your jokes and be up there and all of us now are feeling really angsty that we can't do it uh, as often as we were. So I think no matter what happens, I'll, we'll definitely be getting back to it. I definitely hope I'm doing gigs fully at yeah. some point soon. But yeah, I'm definitely. I'm now thinking I've, I've got to maybe comedian slash writer a bit more than just comedian. Sure. At uh, the time that we're recording this, then uh, it, it is an interesting time. I, I think we. I guess that yourself and other comedians in in the UK, particularly, were starting to get work coming back in and now uh, the government in the UK has just announced about to go into another kind of lockdown or, or increased restrictions which is uh, uh, unless you take up ground shooting as a hobby is going to mean that uh, you're going to be restricted to, uh, very restricted again in what you can actually go and do. Yeah I mean I did wonder if there's some sort of grouse shooting comedy crossover but I'd worry about the heckles I think they'd get quite violent so uh, I, I don't think I'd want to risk it. I, I was wondering if it's going to start becoming the new national sport is there anything that people can actually come together with? <laughs> yeah the poor grouse though we'll be out of them within seconds um, but yeah it's it's where I, I did have uh, we're speaking about two days after some gigs I had in the diary then just got pulled out because of fears but, but currently We'll see what happens. And again, everything could change by this afternoon, job. But the, um, currently the restrictions are just that things have to close at 10pm. So a lot of comedy gigs have moved earlier and they're fine. But the big issue is, as always, venues can't survive with a socially distanced audience because that map tickets won't pay for staff and won't pay to keep a venue running and all those sort of things. And therefore, often they're finding it's easier to just close. So, well, I mean, the, the one bonus of comedy is that you can do it anywhere. And the lovely thing about the summer weather we've had is that there's been lots of outside gigs because it just requires one person and a mic um and you know you need to be able to see the performer and i mean even then i've done lots of gigs without mics as well but you you know it's it, it can be put on anywhere and it's, it's quite resilient as a as a thing because i think it's much like the old tradition of storytelling it just requires one person to be able to deliver a set and 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 make people laugh and that is the the basics of what stand-up comedy is and so hopefully that can continue to happen in some form in some way uh, for the future well let's hope so i saw i saw on some of your social media i forget if it was twitter or linkedin or something like that but uh, that you were, were doing an outside event and you had some some pictures up on that as well um but i have also seen you do you do quite a bit of writing and, and i certainly see you're quite active on twitter in fact some of your tweets regularly seem to get featured in uh, um when people pull these lists of like humorous tweet responses to um, situations that are going on, like topical uh, situations, your tweets are quite often in those lists. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I, 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 I think I, I used to use Twitter um, as a starting point for writing longer jokes because I, I think the formatting of Twitter and it became less so when, when that you're allowed to put more characters in, but you know, the, 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 a good joke is often brief. Um, brevity is the key of wit. Was it was a Shakespeare quote, wasn't it? And um, and and I do think that Twitter often was was a great format for comedians because it was uh, words, and you could just get like a one or two sentence gag in, 
and it would really land because that's how the what the format allowed. And I often, um, and I still do, I suppose, I use it as a platform to put a short joke in. And then when live, uh, back in the days when live things happened, I would expand that into a bigger and bigger bit. So I'd use it as a starting point almost sort of test the waters for reactions a little bit although i didn't really care it was, it was almost working out where the words go mostly and then i could use that for for a longer bit but i think also with twitter you can um you know the joys of social media is it's immediate and uh, by the time you get on stage often news has gone by um audiences are often slower in terms of taking things in so you often find that it's best to talk about uh, a story or something that happened a couple of weeks ago um, unless I mean now is obviously slightly unprecedented people are more into the news because of everything that's going on but previously you, you wouldn't be able to do something to happen in the news that day you'd have to kind of reference something from a few weeks before whereas Twitter you can get an immediate joke out about what's happened and then save that for the live audiences later so they, they've all got different benefits um, but I think again it's that thing of just needing to put something out there these these jokes are rattling around in my head and something will happen and I immediately think ah oh, I got that gag um, yeah. but it's I mean I'll be slightly slightly whingy and that the uh, and I will not be able to remember who to attribute this to. So apologies to the comedian who came up with this. Uh, but the good rule of comedy by some comedian, I can't remember, is that you never choose your first idea because everyone will have that idea. And you never choose your second idea because you're trying too hard not to do the first idea. Choose your third idea. That'll be the original and well thought out gag. Right. And, and often that works for me. Often that that formula really works. So very rarely you come up with the gag immediately and go, this is gold. And I've it's come out. Of, it's like a just sort of like a miracle. It just appears. And there's the fully formed gag in your head. But often it requires work and discarding the sort of less original ideas is part of that. But Twitter, in a way ruined that because a lot of twitter is about speed and getting the the cheap well not the cheap gag that's very unfair but getting the easiest gag out quickest means you did it first and i try my best to not fall prey to that but it is you know it's it's different to the circuit where everyone has to have their if you're on a live gig it's your own individual voice and your own individual take that that makes a set and on twitter i think it is sometimes just what are the what are the herd thinking can i do it fastest so yeah, yeah. I, I was desperately trying to get one of uh, one of my jokes to to take on Twitter as like a, a, a meme of uh, the Death Star destroying Alderaan and it turning out to be a gender reveal party for Darth Vader, but it didn't. <laughs> oh, it that's didn't lovely! It didn't seem to take off. Uh, no. Oh no, <laughs> that's like very funny. I like the idea, um, but yeah, I think, so it's a great a great place to maybe test some material and generate ideas that you might develop later on. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, that with all these things, you know, everything requires different writing. So um, if you are doing a stand up set, you pace things differently because you sometimes want to build up to a joke. So you might have uh, uh, you might start a narrative and you might throw in a few quick jokes, but you'll save the big punchline for the end. Twitter is a strong, <clears throat> a strong punchline gag straight away. And then like podcasts is often more informative. So you sort of litter jokes throughout but maybe have less punchline heavy. So I try and cater the writing to what I'm doing. And Twitter is perfect for, I think it's why comedians such as Tim Vine or Milton, Milton Jones, people who are really good at one liners, Gary Delaney were so strong on Twitter. Um, they still are, but especially at the beginning, people go, wow, you're amazing. As they got thousands, thousands of followers because they already wrote like that. Um, and I find it a good test for me to, just edit down what I do. I'm very waffly and especially on stage, I can be quite waffly and go off on tangents and Twitter pins me down to making one joke about one thing very quickly. And I, I quite like that it forces me to do that. 
Yeah, it's, uh, that's, it's interesting you say that. Yeah, I think um, being a bit more concise with things is, is, is really important. And, and whilst you can allow maybe a certain degree of waffle and stuff, if you, if you digress too much or waffle too far, um, people start looking at their watches, I guess, or, or start checking their messages. And it's not, not, not the best idea. So practicing being concise, practicing like saying, um, saying the most you can with the least words is, is a really good habit and, and one that um, I'm not so, not so great at myself. I like to waffle too. And uh, I know when I first started doing like, things like Toastmasters Club where you get like five five minutes uh, in your first speech or five to seven minutes, generally seven, up to seven minutes uh, for a speech, if you really want to make some points, I, I want to, uh, you know, probably about the same time as a lot of people's comedy sets if they're just doing a, a, a quick gig somewhere. Uh, if you want to... Um, make your points or actually tell a story that's worth telling you have to be very economical with your words and and edit yourself down and this is that a bigger part of the writing process perhaps not just for me but for people in mm. comedy as well of uh, a lot of it's in the editing yeah absolutely i mean the very interesting thing as you mentioned is when you first start out as a comedian you get five minute sets and so you have to very quickly establish who you are very quickly get a gag out and they often say the audience judges you in the first 30 seconds and so in that first 30 seconds um and in fact there's a there's a very brutal comedy night that always happened called the comedy store gong show and the point of the gong show was that they'd often have upwards of 30 40 acts on because they'd walk on stage and the audience would hold three members of the audience could hold up a red card and when all three three are up you get gonged off the stage and you had to try and survive to beat the gong you had to do five minutes without getting gonged off and i uh i failed as many times as i succeeded i managed to i failed sort of uh, about six times and i managed to beat it six times and it's because the more you do it the more you learn that you've got to get on stage and immediately say this is who i am and here's a joke right and you've got to do it confidently and people go oh i'm keen to hear what happens next you've got to grab their attention and so newer acts um not just from that show but in general are really good at being punchy and working out how to get the most out of themselves in a short space of time. So you go from five minutes to 10 minutes and then often to 20 minutes and then beyond. And then you do our Edinburgh shows. And actually one of the problems that I definitely felt was the more experienced comic uh, you become, you get offered longer and longer sets. And actually that makes, that makes you edit less because you don't feel the need to, because you can get into deeper stuff and longer bits, but then you balance that out by, walking on stage with a confidence that a lot of people trust immediately. So you don't have to have that gag in the first 30 seconds because you can walk on stage and they, there's a, a, a assuredness about you that people instantly feel. And often you'll have a higher placing on a gig. You'll be either the opening act or the closing act and people will go, Oh, they're probably there because I trust that, you know, cause they're good. And so but in the downside, as I said, is you lose, I think sometimes some of that, uh, urgency to get a gag out you lose that kind of conciseness um as definitely what happened with me i definitely as i said became more waffly and i think at the beginning of my career i was very punchy and very gag 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 and it as it went on and i was able to do long bits about the state of everything i really i started uh throwing gags in here and there but not stressing so much about making an immediate impression right but then do, do you think sometimes that that pulls people in more that your your comedy style can become a bit more conversational where it, you know there's that sort of same public speaking like it's you are having a conversation with your audience you're not just presenting you are you're having a conversation and you need to give those moments for people to respond in their heads so in comedy you need to give those people, people to think people to laugh and, and have those responses as well and, and leave those points in there otherwise you end up um you end up treading on, on the laughs right 
Yeah, absolutely. And I also think it, um, I think it allows for personality more because I think if you're in five minutes just bashing out joke after joke after joke, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that will be doing that and will be operating in a similar sort of style. Um, it's often how you spot like really sort of amazing comedians very quickly because they have their own style very fast um whereas everyone else is kind of formulate because they have to be to fit the time scale and um i think when you when you get to ease into your own boots a bit and you get to just be you on stage and be chatty it becomes more original because it's more you and it's more who you are and i think that's that's a definite strength i think that's that's probably one of the the biggest fears it's certainly a fear with public speaking, but it must be an even bigger fear with comedy of actually getting that connection with the audience and and having people sort of feel like they can connect to you and, and warm up to you. And so I know that's something that uh, that we mentioned, but I think last time we spoke, but um, that, is that something we can talk a bit more about mm-hmm. your experience with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the, uh, it's tricky because I don't entirely know how to do it. <laughs> like, I mean, I've done this job for 17 years and there are still some rooms that you can walk into and they won't like you. And I will, I, I can't tell you why I can't, I, I still have nightmares about a gig at the Blackwood Miners Institute. This is about four or five years ago uh, where the compare introduced me and the audience didn't even applaud. And I walked on and they gave me stony silence for 30 minutes. And I tried quick gags. I tried conversation. I tried stories. I tried talking to the audience. Nothing got them going. I just then put my head down, finished my set, got off stage. The next act came on, rapturous applause, laughter. And I was like, I don't know what I did. What have I done? (laughs) What did I just got in my car and went all the way home? And I still don't know. I still think about that gig and I can't work out what it... I hadn't, you know, I hadn't, even, I hadn't said anything. They didn't like me before I'd even got on stage. But I mean, that, that, thankfully, that's very rare. And I think that the, I think I'm uh, slightly, sounds uh, again, very um, smug, but I, I know I'm quite friendly. People find me quite friendly the second I walk on stage. And, and that's been a trait that I, it, it probably stopped me writing as well for quite some years because I knew I could get away with being friendly before I had to prove the jokes and uh and and sort of likable in that sense and I used that to my advantage and became slightly lazy I think in the first five six years doing comedy but but it is it is it is that simple thing of walking on stage and not being if you walk on stage and you're nervous the audience is nervous with you even if you are nervous in your head if you're standing out open arms if you pull the mic to one side and you say here I am and you speak clearly instantly the audience react relax just a little bit and they will give you more leeway and then you can possibly ruin it by doing terrible jokes but from that point on you've got them at least a bit and uh, it's one of the first things we, we t- i teach um or have teach uh, taught comedy workshops to kids and one of the first things that we teach them is you've got to appear confident even if it's really hard it can be really hard because people are terrified but the first thing you can do is just open body language move the mic right out the way take it out of the stand and say i know what i'm doing here right and even if you don't you're giving that message to the audience to relax and then them relaxing can make you relax. That first laugh will come a bit quicker and it just helps the whole thing go. Yeah. So I, I talked recently to someone who was talking about a public speaking experience where they completely died, forgot what they were supposed to say and, uh, and ended up uh, not doing any speaking for a long time afterwards. <laughs> and so that, um, I think that's more intensified perhaps with, with comedy. So, so how do you help yourself come back from, a, a bad stage experience like if you actually have died feel like you've died on stage or like the audience have hated you or whatever it is or the you're just not getting the laughs uh it's i mean 
it used to be very hard and it used to ruin me for quite a long time. And now I don't care. <laughs> I think I've been doing it long enough. I just don't care. I, I think that it, uh, there was a lot of good advice over the years uh, where I remember somebody after one, uh, a comedian called John Fothergill said to me after one gig, uh, and again, this sounds quite callous out of context, but I'd had quite a bad death at the comedy store and I walked off stage really miserable. He said, oh, what are you going to do? Kill yourself? And I went, no. And he said, there you go. See, it's over now, isn't it? You do another gig tomorrow. And I went, Oh yeah, <laughs> it's only, you, you have to put it into context if it's only a certain amount of time, life goes on, you'll have another certain amount of time and another night. And, and I think it is putting it into perspective about how damaging it really is to you. I mean, you know, the, the nice thing with comedy is that it's different audiences every night. Mm. There is, I mean, at the Edinburgh Fringe, you do a show every single day and there is, everyone has at least one day in that month where the audience will hate them. Every single act will have that one show. And we all discuss it. It's always the one show. It's normally in the middle part of the month. It's always when you really need a pick me up. And there's always that one audience who doesn't take their jackets off, sits there crossed arms and stares at you because over 30 shows, you're going to have one that doesn't, you know, just the law of odds. And I, I think it, part of it is just, well, I think part of it is learning to take it in your stride. And part of it is saying, it, you know, know when to blame yourself because sometimes it is you and sometimes it definitely has been me and I've definitely messed up and I've said the wrong things or I have got off on the wrong foot or I've stumbled early on and it hasn't worked but sometimes it is also them and they don't want to see or they're not in the right mood or the lighting in the room is very bright and they feel very self-conscious that you can see them or the they've all walked in from the rain and don't feel comfortable and they're all wet and you know there are other factors that can come into play and it's it's useful to be able to differentiate when it's that um but i think the the other thing is that you you know uh the the more confident you get with doing it the more you can change up your style i have had it where i've started and it's it's just i started with too much energy and they were a laid back crowd so i slowed it down or i started with not enough energy and they were a noisy crowd so i sped it up or you know they wanted me to talk about them so i broke off from material and i started talking to them and bouncing ideas off them and suddenly they became involved and you know, um, I'll, I'll give you, and I know we're planning to talk about this later, but the the first time I kicked in Finland, I was warned by everyone, oh, the Finnish are a terrible audience. They don't laugh. They won't laugh at you. They just sit there and they stare. And I was like, is this true? Because people laugh all around the world. I don't believe that. I don't believe you can stereotype people as when they laugh or not. And so I spent some time researching things about Finland and researching things about current Finnish politics. And I mean, not long, just a few hours before my gig. And the first thing I did on stage was comment about something their prime minister had done in the last few days, comment on something about the local area. I made some joke about Moomins and I just sort of connected with them on a couple of things and I got rolling laughter immediately. And then they warmed to everything else I said. I Then I started doing my normal material about me and about my life and about living in London and other things. And it all worked. And it was simply that connected. It's just saying, I... I, I, um, you know, I know that you're there and I know that you're <laughs> a very small point. Some years ago, I went to see Chris Rock at the, the Apollo and, um, and I, uh, and he's obviously Chris Rock's amazing comedian, well, you know, world renowned, amazing comedian. And the majority of it was very funny, but he walked on stage. He didn't even say a sort of, Hey, it's great to be here. At the end of the gig, he didn't say thanks for coming. He just finished his joke, dropped the mic and walked off. And there was a disconnect that was almost like, I could have just watched this on DVD. There was nothing you did about this that made it live. There was nothing you did about this that said, I'm, you know, again, quite egotistical, but as an audience member, you want to at least be acknowledged that you're there <laughs> and that the person is performing to you. And, and I think sometimes that's overlooked when people just walk in and immediately start, even just walking and going, hey, how are you? is so simple and just says, I 
care about the fact that you're in front of me. Right. And and maybe even the difference between just sort of walking out there and doing exactly what you plan to do and actually going out there and having a little bit of um, connection. And we talked about connection mm. before, but, but just having that thing of, um, like you say, making it feel like it's something unique is that uh, that's important to people. That's that I guess that's why people go to live events, right? It's a unique experience that not everyone else is getting to share with you, and and you're getting to enjoy live with other people. And if the person on on the stage isn't isn't acknowledging that in some way, then yeah, I, I can see how that would create a, a strong disconnect. And, and I've talked with some other comedians for one of the. One of the good things on my side about uh, about things like and not there not being a lot of comedy work uh, around at the moment is it's given me an opportunity to come and speak with comedians that I might not otherwise get. So great for me, but not so great for everyone else. But uh, <laughs> but it has meant that um, I've got a lot of insights into from people so far, and I'm sure we'll continue to get many more into what how people deliver their material. Like if you get on stage and what happens when your stuff just isn't working? Do you change it around? Do you just do exactly what you've planned to do and, and carry on delivering it until you get to the end of your set? Or you just say, okay, this isn't working. This isn't hitting. Let's, uh, let's change some stuff around or let's try, try this or a different angle or some other things. What, what are your thoughts there? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the tricky thing here is, I think, again, it's, I mean, as is nearly always the answer with all these things is it's experience. Uh, it's, it's the most annoying answer because you can't just immediately get that. But is the thing that early on in my days of stand up, I'd have just panicked, <laughs> either run away off stage or I'd have plowed on with what I had not working and continue to die. And then as the years go on, you build up more and more material, you build up more of, uh, you just sort of deal with different audiences and know how to change up accordingly. Um, I, I think it also helped that, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I, it also helped that as well as doing comedy sets, I've done a lot of hosting. And so I often compare the evenings where my job will be to be funny and do jokes, but also get the audience warmed up for the acts and get them uh, applauding. And when I do that, I made a decision quite some years ago that, I wouldn't do material straight away. And the first thing I'd do is I might have an opening gag, but then I'd come in and talk to the audience and I'd keep talking to each member of the audience until I could find something funny to bounce off them because there's not as much pressure as when you're an act to deliver gag, gag, gag. You can kind of ask a couple of questions before you, you, you know, it's, it's worth almost digging deep to get a good bit of material rather than trying to force yourself to find a not so good gag at the top. And so that gave me a kind of confidence to go on stage and go, right, I've got nothing. How do I get something? And, and to uh, sort of root out material from people and, and from the kind of resources around me. And that then helps when you're on stage doing a set, because if you're in the middle of doing a material that you have planned and it's not quite gelling, you can break off and go, right, let me work out why this isn't let's talk to the audience let's bounce off them find things about them and maybe i can work from that what i need to change my material to be i mean you know there is the thing of there's there's always the uh sort of problem in stand-up if you want to do the artistic creative thing that is you that you're dying to do but at the same time our job is to make the audience laugh and we're there for them and they have paid to laugh and if we're not delivering that <laughs> then we need to work out a way to be delivering that and so yeah, I think it's, as I said, I think the majority though is is experience. I mean, I'm just now at a point where if I start on a certain subject, like I do talk about politics a lot in my, my, my stand-up for, for grown-ups, but I've also had audiences that really don't want to hear it and really want escapism. And I can sense that quite quickly if it's true. And then I will change into material about being a dad or about my life or about, you know, any other things that I'm currently talking about. And I've got that repertoire to do it, but I, I couldn't have done that 
15 years ago, uh, I would have just failed. I think it's good to remember that running off the stage in tears is an option. So <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's the best option. I've seen they used to, there's two types of acts, I think. And ones are the acts that know it's not going well. And if they're not being paid for a specific amount of time, they will just leave and go, fine. I know you don't want to see me. I'll go. And other acts who I won't name, like to keep going and keep going and drive the entire gig into the ground and let me just recommend that is not the way to do it know when you're beaten <laughs> and go there are times you can't fix it it's better to well, go de- death on the stage is much like death in a, a marvel comic it's not permanent it's uh, yeah. like you say you, you you'll come back from it you you can and will recover from it uh, so long as you want to i guess so long as you sort of recognize that uh, I think too many people think that uh, something like that is a, is a failure and means their their career's over. But it's like you don't get to, as you say, you don't get to just go to being experienced. You don't just get to go from zero to successful. It mm. takes those hours of practice. It takes those hours of experience. It takes the willingness to fail. It takes the bad experiences that you probably learn more from than than some of your better experiences to develop yourself and become good at it. And most people don't want to go through those kinds of processes, not just for comedy or speaking, but for anything. People just want to be like in the matrix, have it plugged in and programmed straight into your brain and instantly you can fly a helicopter or whatever. It's like like life just don't work like that. Our brains don't work like that. And uh, so it's, it's this thing of, if everyone, if everyone can do it, everyone would do it and not everyone can mm. do it. So you have to really want to do it and recognize that you're doing something that most people, most people aren't going to push themselves when it gets uncomfortable. Most people aren't going to you know, come back and sort of try again after uh, trying to deliver a, a five minute comedy set where they don't get one single laugh. It's like, but just understand that's actually part of the process. It's part of the journey. It's not, uh, it's not a failure. Yeah, and I, I think it, it, that again comes back to you've got to really know you want to do it. You've got to really know you want to do it because it can be, especially early on, if you've never had it before, if you've never had full rejection for who you are and the, and the material you've written. Because it's, it is, it's a rejection of your personality, your own personality and your sense of humour, which is very personal. Um, it's very personal to have that happen to you. And that can be quite harsh. Um, but you've got to really want to go again. And you've got to have a confidence as well that actually you can fix it and, and a willingness to learn a willingness to look at it and say what did I do wrong what didn't work how do I fix this um, I think another big part and, and I, I don't know if this happens so much in the public speaking uh, scene uh, but the, the you know the nice thing about comedy is there's always a camaraderie you're always on with other acts and there have been gigs where I've walked off backstage and gone wow that was awful and they've all gone yeah they are terrible or you know ah well you bomb try next time you know and, and you've got at least friends there or they might go and then have a terrible one and come back and you're like oh you know <laughs> this audience and <laughs> we can all kind of get together and go it's us versus them I mean, you you know you, you, that sort of camaraderie and then the drive home with other acts can often really be healing as yeah. a process and i think the same with anything talking to other people about it getting some perspective outside of your own head can I, uh, can really help I, I would say on the sort of more practice or amateur circuit of public speaking that is the case people want you to succeed and and they're really cheering you on uh, but I think that's maybe a bit less the case in uh, professional speakers. Like, like you might have some other speakers there who go like, okay, well, you know, don't worry about it, come back. But a lot of the time you just come off the stage and like, oh, well, I kind of bombed. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so, so I think it might, might be a little bit different there. But uh, not, that, not that there isn't camaraderie, but uh, it depends on the kind of event that you're, that you're speaking at. Sure. I guess. 
to to a greater degree. But it's it's nice to know that in the, in the comedy stuff that you know, pe- people understand the journey. I see that as being like community is very important, especially with these kinds of things. Even even in the the podcasting world, like you and I are both podcasters, we have that in, in common. And uh, and and I find my experience generally in the podcasting community is people really support each other and really want to help each other. And it's like, apparently now is the perfect time to fill up the vending machine next to me. <laughs> I did hear that, yeah. <laughs> I apologise for, uh, for the noise in the background. As soon as I put up the recording sign on my door, it's like, uh, people take that as their cue to come and make as much noise as they can outside my office. <laughs> They're amateur SFX oh, uh, producers, shop. that's what it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my coffee shop illusion. So... Um, how would how would you personally describe your own style of comedy? I know you've said a lot that it's political, but you've also talked about a few different aspects. Like, if you were asked to describe that to somebody, what would you say? Uh, it's tricky um, because I think broadly I'm an observational comedian because I talk about stuff I notice and care about. I mean, my, my sort of own ethos is that I only talk about stuff that I want to, that I've got an interest in. I'm not going to approach an audience. I mean, for example, apologies to anyone listeners that does love football. I just don't care about football whatsoever. So I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to walk on stage and pretend I know about it. And, uh, you know, there's, there's no point. You've got to talk about what you know. And, and the things that I'm passionate about right now are, I'm very concerned about politics. Um, and uh, I'm also a, a dad of a two and a half year old, which takes up nearly all of my life. And uh, I'm trying to be healthy. So basically, that's my set. And, they, they, you know, I suppose that sounds quite pedestrian in some ways, but it's my individual take on it. It's the funny things I've noticed about them. Um, and I find it hard to talk about anything else because there's nothing else in my brain right now uh, that's taking over my life. And so I try and do it. I think one of the so some of the nice comments I've had are that when I talk about politics, I do it in a very friendly and relatable manner. And I do, I don't want to be this, you know, um, kind of snooty know-it-all. I don't want to be standing up going, this is what you should think. And I know things and I've read stuff. I want to be saying, wow, I've seen the same stuff you have. And this is bonkers, isn't it? Like, you know, I want you to know that from a very, I, I am very much a layman when it comes to this stuff. I don't study politics. I just watch it and go, this is just weird <laughs> like why can't we let's talk about this between us yeah. and so I, I i want it to be approachable and i i want it to be um yeah just clear for people i think it's it's, it's why i've had some really nice jobs uh off the back of doing politics stuff uh, such as i work for a uh uh, a sort of social innovation charity called Nesta and their podcast is all about future social innovations and things that I looked at in, when they first briefed me and I went, I have no idea what any of these things mean. And then you look into them and go, how do I break this down so that I can talk to other people about them? Because their podcast mainly go to people within their own company. They wanted other people to listen to it. And I looked at it and said, well, this is how I'd, this is how I'd explain it to someone. <laughs> this is how I, if I was on stage to a bunch of people that didn't know anything about any of this, how would I say, okay, where do we start with this? How do we break it down? How do I make this funny so that you're interested in what I'm talking about, even if you never had an interest before? And that's, I'm very keen to do that with, with all of my work really. Yeah. So it's, I find the whole area of comedy and politics interesting. I, I guess for as long as there's been politics, there's probably been political satire. And yet it seems that we're at uh, a point in time where it's getting harder to satirise politics because it's so ridiculous already. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I think there's... uh... I, I mean, like this, this could be an hour podcast by itself. So I, I just warn you now, <laughs> you might have to stop me. But I, I think that there is, there is a difference. And again, uh, referring to Twitter, I think Twitter has made some 
you know, made some attitudes towards it quite lazy. But it isn't comedy and it isn't satire if you're just quoting what people have already said. And so while a lot of our politicians in the world right now are saying absolutely ludicrous things, the trick is finding out how you still make a joke around that, how you still take a different perspective on it, how you still allow the audience to not just go, these people are funny, but perhaps this is dangerous or perhaps this is bizarre and we shouldn't be treating this as normal and finding a way to make it laugh. So, I, you know, I try not to just say Donald Trump said this. I would try to look at the whole issue around it and uh discuss it i'm trying to think of a good example for you from this week but it's <laughs> there's too many in my brain um but you know very, well for example we've got this thing this week of the the coronavirus restrictions are from 10 p.m and so i've been writing about the confusion they must have between coronavirus and vampires and how the other restrictions will be carry garlic and a small cross and don't invite it indoors and you should be fine and just the silly things of it's taking a slightly outside view on it's it's not just the statement anymore. You've got to be able to make it relatable and make it more interesting outside of that, which is, I mean, the same for any subject. You know, the, people talk about there being hack subjects about plain food or about dogs versus cats or all those sort of things that it, it's not about the subject. It's about how you look at it and it's about your perspective on it. And there is, there's always an original perspective on anything because it comes from you and it comes from yourself and it's how you digest it and what you want people to know about it. And I think that's the, the same with politics. I see I'm, I'm, I'm pretty left wing and I, uh, but more than that, I just don't like hypocrisy. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and part of me in this current state of things, I've failed at many things through my life and I'm angry that I don't earn as much money for it as politicians do. So sometimes that's my angle of going, why don't I get to get jobs, you know, finding ferry companies that don't have any boats yeah, or whatever. Um, Railing and you'll be fine. But uh... Well, that's it. That's it. So it's, um, you know, it's, I think it's definitely helped as well that I've just, I, I, my personality has changed when I was sort of uh, in my early twenties on stage, I was very bouncy and likable. And now I'm in my very late thirties. I am grumpy and <laughs> slower. And I think, I think now it allows me to convey my attitudes towards politics a little bit better with an audience. I think they, they, uh, they assume that yes, you do watch a lot of the news <laughs> a bit more. But then a political comedy has been almost a growth industry to, to some degree. There's certainly been a lot more shows that, um, talk about political events. I mean, even uh, even spitting images making a comeback now in, in the UK as well. But you know, certainly um, from the US, you see guys like um, John Oliver and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of other names now because they're all it's Trevor by. Noah, Stephen Colbert, yeah, uh, yeah Samantha B, yeah, people that that are doing commentary on what's going on politically. Uh, uh, Seth Meyers as well, uh, who's uh, an interesting guy. He's Who's, who was doing all of all of that on Trump uh, long before everyone else, I think. Um, but um, it's it's interesting that politics has kind of become almost um, comedy, I should say, has almost become a home for for truth in in these sorts of areas, or and and for information, because a lot of people are getting more information from people who are presenting comedy shows than they are from mainstream news media, which is a very bizarre situation to find ourselves in. It's really odd. I mean, uh, I'm going to get just vaguely sanctimonious for a second, but I, um, and a slight tangent too. So some years ago, I took my mum to see um, Harry Bullafonte do a talk at the Royal Festival Hall. And uh, if anyone doesn't know him, he's obviously the incredible Calypso singer, but he was also a massive political activist and led the Million Man March and was a uh, massive uh, sort of campaigner for civil rights and then against apartheid in South Africa. And hearing him speak was one of those properly beautiful, just sitting there going, I want all this inspiration in me. This is amazing. You're so incredible. But somebody, uh, this, I just always remember, during a Q&A and somebody asked him about the arts and what he felt about 
cuts to the arts and his thing was that arts are the gateway to truth arts are the way that other people perceive world events and it is the responsibility of the arts to say this is it not necessarily politics but just anything in the world this is you know a way that you can view it here's how to understand it and i feel like comedy is always the outsider you know with with comedy we're always the people that see outside the box we're always the people with the weird view we're always the people that if you you've you know if you have your normal day of going to work and doing this we're the people that will say well isn't the way that you go to work weird isn't the way that you do this weird isn't this how do we break it down so it's not how you see it anymore and Politics is so prevalent in so many people. You know, more and more people are interested in politics, even if they're exhausted by it and sick of it. They're still interested in it because of everything that's happening, whichever so many countries across the world right now, there is quite volatile and very populist politics. And so people are aware of it. And um, and I think comedy is perfect for saying, well, don't let's laugh about this and understand it that way. It's not so aggressive. It's not as aggressive as saying, you should believe something else. This is wrong. It's saying, let's laugh at this. Let's mock it and digest it that way. And I think that's a very um, accessible way to deal with it. And, and, uh, and again, as I said, it's just in a lot of people's minds. So if you don't talk about it, you find that people in audiences can be thinking, why are you not mentioning this thing? Like, isn't that what's bothering you? Isn't that what's bothering us all? And if you don't say it, it's like a, a much lesser scale. If you're say doing a show and a light falls off the ceiling and smashes or somebody drops a glass, and it makes a big noise. If you don't mention it, everyone in the audience goes, did they not hear that? Did they not see that break? Did they not do that? And all it takes is for you to go, oh, that's a bit weird or that. You don't even have to be funny about it. You just have to acknowledge it. And they go, you're in this world with us and, you know, uh, and and here with us. And it just, I don't know, it helps helps you connect a bit. I I really like what you're saying there. I mean, yeah, certainly this sort of thing expands beyond comedy. Like the arts in general are, are potentially a tool to hold a mirror up to humanity, society, and think politics, think everything that's going on. Uh, and maybe comedy is one of the fastest responding ways of doing that because, you know, rather than painting a picture or writing a song, like you can you can put together a, a, a comedy set maybe a bit a bit quicker than a lot of people can respond. But you know, there's certainly lots of other written forms of response in that, in that sense. And I was uh, recently chatting, uh, did uh, a really fascinating episode with a guy called Donald Robertson, who's a, a Stoic philosopher and who writes about Stoicism and stuff. And he was talking about, like, we talked a lot about Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, and th- this is a, a bit of a digression, perhaps, but um, we were talking about how he, uh, he he wasn't a big fan, and like, um, he said it was uh, Socrates wasn't a big fan of uh, people who would just get up on a stage and and just like look good, sound good, and entertain everyone. Everyone be having a good time, but nothing changes. Everyone's just entertained, and it's kind of like, uh, okay, well, that that's fun, but that's for you. That's not for them. Whereas the people who actually had a message, who offered some challenge, um, they're the ones who um, who had more value, if you like. Uh, and in my sort of view, from my perspective on, on comedy as well, I, I do think to some degree it's uh, the comedians certainly that I like and respect and admire the most, and I think many people do, are the ones who do that, who who really challenge and, and perhaps make you a little bit uncomfortable about some things, not just there to mindlessly entertain you. It's not just light entertainment and you come away from just thinking, oh, I had a few giggles and it wasn't that nice, but you actually come away thinking about things and, and challenging some of your ideas and concepts. What do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to, uh, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And um, I can talk about that a little bit more, but I should also say, because some of my favourite comedians are also the ones that are completely bonkers and people like Harry Hill who are absolutely silly um, or, um, you know, or do clowning or do, and I think in a way though, uh, you know, and, and I don't know if everyone agrees with this, I think that is still challenging because it's taking normality and saying we're going to completely warp normality. It's a bit like how Dadaist was actually a political movement, but what Dadaist did was completely bonkers, but it was in as a kind of opposed to the authoritarian, uh, very rigid um, politics that they were surrounded by. They've said, right, well, we're not going to act in any of the ways that we're being told to. We're going to be as weird as possible, invent our own languages and have silly costumes. And, you know, and, and I think that is still a form of protest and a form of art in its own way. Um, but yeah, but I, I totally agree. I, I, the comedy I like is either complete escapism, bonkersness, or I like it to be really like raw cutting politics and or not even politics, but just with a message, with a point to it and with an authenticity to it. I like comics that I, that I, I see the, the person on stage and I think, yeah, you, you, there is some truth that you do think that you're not just saying this to make people laugh. You, this is grounded in something. Um, and I think that one of the big issues that, that comedy's had for ages is that there was uh, there's been complaints about firstly about uh, comedy being sanitized by the the woke libertarians or whatever you know whatever term people are using this week that comedy's been sanitized and you can't say anything and at the same time the same newspapers will complain when a comedian does a joke that they don't like that's too edgy and what we've lost is it, the the nice thing about comedy to to maybe use the term incorrectly is it was always a safe space it was always your audience are in the room with you and you're going to do material for them and things could be said that night that maybe aren't correct or aren't you know or or maybe you'll push them to the furthest boundary they can be but you've got this understanding that you're all here for now and you're playing off them and they're playing off you and um and with more and more things being recorded for online and more and more people tweeting the jokes that they've heard or more and more people, things being reported. It's taken some of that away and it, it sometimes takes the punchline out of context for the intro that we've seen. So um, to do an example, there was a, a comedy show on in the UK uh, last week, Frankie Boyle's New World Order and the comedian Sophie Duker did a throwaway gag. It was about uh, racism and it was, she'd made some comment like, uh, you know, none of these protests mean that we all just want to kill white people. Okay, maybe we do. And then, and then, and then carried on talking, but she did it as a throw. It was a very funny, it was a very funny throwaway because we all know she doesn't, right? She's not a murderer. She's a comedian TV show. It's very funny. But then that got reported in Daily Mail as black comedian wants to kill all white people. And then it got thousands, thousands of complaints from people that hadn't seen it. And we've lost that well, I think partly because people want to be reactionary, but also we've lost that intimacy with the audience that is saying, this is, you know, we're joking because we're a comedian. And instead now comics are often being judged for content harsher than politicians are. There's, right. You know, I've, I've, yeah, there's quite a few comics going. For example, that I used before, like, there's, there's no way she was serious about wanting to kill the president. She just did that photo, uh, which didn't look at all realistic, but got a message across. And it was clear that that was more about the tone and intention and like, uh, a, a metaphor rather than a, a reality and yet she ended mm. up because of the outrage machine about it uh, she ended up getting investigated by the fbi and all sorts of things that, that just should never have happened but like we take like you said we're taking these taking comedians more seriously uh now than than a lot of politicians uh which which is is insane it's an up it, we're in the upside down you know it's uh, yeah 
it's a, a it's, very it's really part. hard i think you know i think artistic license needs to still very much be a thing and i you know and, and also it's it's it, it's people's speed to judge someone based on one thing they've said rather than the full context that it's been in um there's definitely comedians that i work with over the years that i thought of them in a certain way because all i'd heard was that the newspaper reported they'd said one thing and upset this person then you watch their full like half an hour or hour long show and go that joke is actually them being self-deprecating in context about the thing that somebody had said in opposition earlier you know it's like it's always part of a bigger thing yeah. and we, we we miss that with our need for immediate reaction and yeah. uh sometimes that makes me a bit sad as well the hyperbole and the, the twisting really of, of i'd say a lot of news media mainstream media and even social media as well as the, the outrage machine and the, the hyperbole around it the the whole political correctness thing is part of the outrage machine do you, do you find as a comedian that you feel that some of that is censoring what you can and can't say yeah i mean it's 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 uh, i suppose yeah i mean censoring in a way i mean i i am so exhausted by it that there's there's jokes that i just don't put on twitter because i think what's the point in this there's there's no point in me putting this on here because either it's gonna i have to spend the day dealing with abusive comments or even more boringly people telling me oh that's not factually correct when i know it's not because i've written it for the joke a, a very um actually i don't know i don't know <clears throat> if i'm allowed to do this joke on your podcast so you might have to edit this accordingly but i i did a joke recently where um i it was in fact a few years ago which was about comments that said that uh, london had a higher crime rate than new york and my joke was well, that must be because New York's biggest sex pest is now in Washington, D.C. So apologies, John, if that joke's not suitable. But if it's the, not suitable but, to my audience, they're not my audience. <laughs> fair enough. Good. I'm very pleased. It's, it's not rude. It's a bit rude. But it's about Donald Trump. Anyway, but but the, I didn't put that joke on Twitter. This is so. I'm giving this as a petty example. I didn't put that joke on Twitter because it wasn't London's crime rate. It was London's murder rate. And therefore, if you say London's murder rate, it doesn't work with the same joke. So I edited it for the purpose of being funny. However, online, somebody would go, ah, oh, that's not the right thing because actually it was and you think oh i can't be bothered i will tell this joke live to an audience and it always worked live it worked 100 percent of the time live and and it's not worth me putting that online so i'm censored in in those ways i think it just especially just thinking it's not worth my time doing some of this stuff until i've got an audience to maybe tell it to um but also a lot of comedians now especially on tv are censored because they always have to provide balance with everything so if you do one joke about one political party you are pretty much bound by contract to do a joke about another political party even if they've not been in the news and and overall i think that makes comedy quite dull and people then lose faith in it and you know don't think it's being as pointed as it should be and it's because it it can't be half the time well, uh, it does seem that there are a lot of people out there who actually don't have a sense of humour. Uh, <laughs> and, and to make up for it, they're spending all of their time on, on Twitter and other social media channels, making sure that they pull the humour out of everything for everyone else. So it's, uh, it's uh, again, strange times. But um, yeah. I, know, I know we're a bit tight uh, for time today, so I don't want to, uh, to, to, to take too much longer on things, but I do want to sort of pull things to, to a, a bit of a close. There's so many more things I want to talk about. So, so maybe we do have to discuss doing another thing. Definitely. Recording sometime because it's been a really fascinating chat. Um, but I certainly want to talk about uh, a little bit before we, we start wrapping things up about your podcast because you do a show called Part, The Partly Political Podcast and you've been doing that since uh, I looked on the, the iTunes and it was about 2016, if that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We just hit our 200, 200 episode two weeks ago. Yep. Yeah. It's um it, it's it, well it started off as a YouTube series. Uh, I did I did sort of uh, twelve episodes on YouTube and then found YouTube 
far too difficult and editing and filming and everything was more time consuming than just especially as i said with news changing every two minutes you need things out there quicker i think um but the main reason i did it is a bit like everything else i needed to do it i think i would be shouting things at people in the park if i wasn't doing it um, and i needed an outlet to uh vent political material that i was getting on stage and often it'd be out of date by the time i'd got to stage that night and or, or the next day and so i thought if i put it in some sort of format um that, that people can access that it's there and it's out there um but the the thinking behind it is 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 that yeah much like i said before i want to I, you know, it's it's partly selfish. I don't know. I don't understand politics enough. I don't understand a lot of worldly issues enough, and I want to learn. And I figured, well, I can break this down by doing material about politics that I do understand and allowing people to laugh at it, maybe instead of crying. And then I can interview people who are involved in the issues who are experts we had a big backlash in the uk for some years now of oh people don't trust experts anymore said michael gove one of our politicians you know and then it was a big anti-expert thing a big anti-intellectual thing across the 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 spectrum really and i and i thought well why don't i speak to campaigners and 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 lecturers and you know academics and people who are experts in these areas and say can you break this down for me in an understandable way can i ask you the questions that we're all needing to ask and talk to people for longer than they would get on the news because on news they get two minutes they're often asked provocative questions (laughs) that they don't really want to answer and um you know and so for example this week that's just gone out is is with a, a an expert i know in climate change and i just get to ask him quite honestly like are we at the most terrifying tipping point our wildfire is going to go on forever but also is there any hope in any of this and he's very candid and quite you know nicely positive about bits of it and i find it a relief to myself to be able to speak to somebody who's an expert rather than me just sit and panic endlessly um and if i can do that while making people laugh about it i mean what's been really nice i've got listeners across the age range really but i've had quite a lot of listeners who are doing politics at gcse a level or um or you know degree level writing to me going you're really helping me understand this week's brexit negotiations you're really helping me understand this week's parliamentary committee that otherwise is so can be quite boring to sift through and uh i think by putting gags in there and letting people have that momentary laugh they'll just absorb it all a lot quicker Absolutely. I'm about halfway through listening to that episode myself and I'm enjoying it. Oh, thanks. Uh, the, the, the podcast is great and I, and I actively encourage people to go and check it out, uh, not just, just for those reasons you mentioned because it, you know, it is pretty funny as well and, uh, and it's well worth listening to. So, uh, so it's partly the Partly Political Broadcast is called, yeah? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. And um, so as we, as we wrap things up for today, we definitely will have to have you back because uh, it's been a really fun conversation and there's so much more that we can talk about. Um, what, would, what advice would you have for anyone who's maybe thinking of wanting to bring a bit more humour into a presentation or wanting to actually maybe try a bit of stand-up comedy? Um, I think, the, the, well, stand-up comedy-wise, I would just advise maybe leave it a few months. <laughs> Firstly, maybe leave it a few months. Uh, I say that there are actually lots of online gigs and, and bits and pieces happening, so you can get out there. But I think the most important thing is work out what you find funny. Like, just because there's no point in trying to force a, a sense of humour on an audience that you don't enjoy yourself or that you've, um, you know, I often think of uh, some of the cringy best man speeches I've sat through because they've downloaded them offline and uh, online, you know, and, and you always think that you wouldn't have made, made these jokes in conversation. These aren't the jokes that you enjoy. Do jokes that you care about, jokes that fight. Work out what makes you laugh and then add that in and say, is this appropriate to the audience that I'm talking to? 
how do I put this in? I, I think there's, I, I, I just think that it's absolutely worth thinking about because any audience that you speak to, and especially I think in public speaking, you know, in comedy, people are expecting to laugh, but in a situation where they're not, like everyone remembers the teacher that was actually funny. Like, you know, the teacher you had at school that was actually funny was a godsend because, oh my goodness, you're teaching me about Chaucer or something that I wasn't that interested in. And suddenly you've made me laugh and now I care. And I think that works exactly the same in, in any field where you're speaking to people. So work out what you find funny. Um, and uh and just start sprinkling bits of it into what you do don't be afraid to try it the worst that can happen is they don't laugh and you move on and that's it that is really all all that can happen they don't laugh and you move on uh so and fingers crossed they do laugh and you get that buzz and then they're gonna pay attention to everything else uh a lot more candidly absolutely now i often ask my guests for book recommendations and, and yours is a really great book uh, a book that i actually love so so just please share with everyone the book that you would recommend people to read yeah, I was really, uh, I, I, I'm terribly fickle with these things and I, my recommendations change every day depending on how I feel, but I, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I know it's, you know, by Douglas Adams, it's often recommended by so many people. It's a, such a well-known book, but it genuinely changed how I saw comedy. I mean, there's a line in it that simply says, the ship's hung in the air in the way that bricks don't. And that, for me, blew my mind. I'd never read a sentence that had described something by saying what it doesn't do you know <laughs> and, and and that is i think the key to sometimes unlocking comedy it's it's taking the absolute unexpected route to to describe something to people and throw them off like that and uh, and the whole just the sense of humor throughout that book i think has has massively influenced me uh, and i i dare you to find it not funny how it's impossible it's impossible not to laugh throughout that Except maybe the the recent film version, which wasn't. So oh bad. yeah, no. Let's not talk about that. Let's, that's again. That's another hour podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But Douglas Adams definitely was a wonderful author who we unfortunately lost too soon. But uh, a great, a great writer and uh, wonderful. Uh, he also wrote my favourite Doctor Who episodes as well. Um, but um, let's let's wrap things up today then with j- just a fi- final thought to leave with people uh, to wrap up today's episode. Um, I'm trying to remember what I sent you my final thought yeah, now uh, the very first joke you ever wrote <laughs> oh yes it was wasn't it of course um, I was going to think of something profound then I was like oh, there must be something profound I can leave people on um, oh, which is like, I do keep saying to people at the moment, well if you don't laugh you'll cry so you may as well laugh um, which <laughs> I think is, is very, <laughs> it's quite bleak um, the first joke I ever wrote which I still use to this day because I still find it funny and I, I hope that um I hope that it lasts, but was simply that um, Lionel Richie is both rich and looks a bit like a lion. That's it. That was it. Kind of joke that I really like, and I, and I loved it as well. And I think it's uh, uh, nice to uh, nice to wrap up on a joke on a podcast about humour and comedy and the likes. And Tina, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. I know you have to get on and do things and look after your daughter. And uh, so hopefully we can have you back in the future and talk about some of those uh, some of those other things we didn't quite get time for today. But it's been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you tons for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to like and subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. It really helps. Whilst you're here, go and pop over to presentinfluence.com and grab yourself a copy of the Last Minute Presentation Checklist. If you would like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who would make a great guest, please contact me, john at presentinfluence.com. If you want to know more about presentation skills, you're interested in creating and delivering great events online, high ticket, high conversion, 
contact me, john at presentinfluence.com. You can connect with me on Twitter at John A. Ball, Clubhouse, the same. And Speaking Influence is the name of my Facebook group. I'd love to see you there. I do daily live videos all about presentation skills as well. And do look out for my new podcast, Points of Change, which is launching very soon, full of inspirational stories and life turnarounds and how people did it, sharing those stories with you as well. Join me for my next guest, Dave Bricker, on the next episode of Speaking of Influence. We'll be right back.